welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And this week's podcast is sponsored by... Uh, two different bottles of wine. So I'm drinking a lovely red from Jacob's Creek, double barrel. And I've got a Sauvignon Blanc Oyster Bay. Mm. So I don't know, does this mean it's been a particularly busy day for us that we're on two bottles? Or is it, in fact, there were two open bottles on the side or in the fridge? It's probably a combination of the two. We're we're recording this on a Friday evening. Yeah, so Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Well, this is this is a really interesting one, and it's another one of these episodes that to some degree was driven by feedback. So those of you out there thinking, oh, I won't bother telling them what I want them to talk about because they'll never get there. This, this is a real-world example of one that happened. And someone said to us, love your podcast, love what you're doing, but I, I, I want to learn more about how you turn the strategy into things happening in the real world. I might be misquoting yeah, them. So strategy to tactics. Yeah, it? turns the real world. So I, I we had this conversation. It was, uh, it was actually someone we know, and so we bumped into them. And then you said, oh, we should have uh, an episode where we talk about operational art. Now, after you disabused me of the idea that there were paintbrushes or Sharpie pens involved, um, that was interesting to me because I've not heard that term operational art before. So it strikes me that this is probably a military thing and it's probably something which is actually very well understood and well documented. Is that the case? Yes and no. So like all these things, it is definitely a talked about concept. I'm not sure it's a well understood concept. And that's because it's incredibly difficult. So we've talked in the podcast previously about strategy we did a whole episode about different definitions and we came to the conclusion that generally when we're talking about strategy in this context we're talking about the the way that you want to achieve goals over the long term under conditions of uncertainty we've also referenced tactics quite a lot we did a whole episode about my counterpiracy exploits we've talked about the the balance of you know using operating procedures and doctrines and, and and then mission command and allowing people to sort of find their way work out how they're going to achieve things based on a mission what we haven't really done and this is what our friend was talking about in terms of that magic source in the middle of how do you take an abstract conceptual strategic vision and turn it into people doing stuff stuff that's tangible and we've kind of alluded to it but it's operational art and the military talks about it a lot we've got some really really good doctrine on it let me just jump in because that phrase the military have got some good doctrine on it obviously all the military listeners and we know there are a number will know exactly what we mean so we talked about this and said we should do an episode on on operational art and so i went away and thought well to be prepared, I should do a little bit of Googling to understand what operational art might be and how it might apply. And so I, I you know, I wrote myself some notes and found some examples. And maybe we'll talk about those later. And then you, you turned up with your bottle of wine tonight. And all of a sudden I noticed in your hand, 
You have a book, I Gareth. Do. Gareth, you have a book. What's your book, Gareth? So I have Army Doctrine Publication Operations, ADP Ops, which is a sort of book. It's, it's, a, it's a doctrine publication, but it covers how we fight operations. And it's, it's an army publication rather than a joint or a, a defense publication. So it's very much focused on how the land forces think about the concept of fighting operations. But it covers a lot about operational art. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of making a joke of it. So first thing I should say, if there's anyone out there going, how do they get their hands on these documents? Um, actually, these are public domain. So for those of you interested in these, these documents are freely available from the government. So we're not we're not doing anything naughty or inappropriate by sharing these. But the second thing that was really interesting to me was we, we've talked about sort of guides or documents in the military before. This is a very, very detailed document, which it's obviously not just operational art, but actually what I thought was fascinating was this is the guidebook for going to do that. So we've talked in previous episodes, how do you take a group of 500, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, or in the British Army's case, 80,000 or so, how do you get them, how do you get them to behave in a common way and think in a common way? And this is a really good example of it. So, okay, given, given all the lineup, why don't, why don't you start with this sort of the 101, what sort of things are covered in operational art? What are the key principles of operational art? Yeah, so as we said, it's the link between strategic vision and strategy and tactical application for doing things and it's that bit that fuses them in the middle so it's the way that we orchestrate capability in order to achieve strategic goals and it's the, the term is art is used specifically because there's a there's a tendency to go one of two ways to either use gut instinct intuition and often the experience of the highest paid person in the room or the most powerful person in the room, the commander or the CEO or, or something like that. Um, and therefore you're falling into that heuristic bias trap and you're relying on experience that might not be relevant to a dynamic situation or to go the other way and to think of this as a, uh, a problem that just needs a deep analysis. Turn the handle. Yeah, there is only one answer. If we follow the algorithm correctly, we will get the right answer. Exactly that. And, you know, we've talked about the difference between complex and complicated problems before, but these are very much complex problems that we need to solve. Because if they weren't, we wouldn't be talking about strategy. We'd be talking about Gantt charts and sort of planning. And we're talking about strategic planning. It's an art, but it's a balance of intuition and analysis. And some of the concepts we go through are this idea of there's, there's really two aspects to operational art. One is the design of the campaign. Uh, and we use the term campaign because what, we, what we're talking about here is the delivery of various stages or various sort of pulses or surges of activity over time. Um, so activities... So campaign, obviously, a very specific military word, but really what well, you're saying is it's it's a 
it's a group of things that we do together. I, I yeah. guess what I'm trying to get at is I'm trying to think of the the something that makes it easy to think from a business perspective. Well, if you think about advertising campaigns, for example, an advertising campaign, and I think the, the terminology is very similar because a lot of the advertising uh, industry executives were demobbed from the army in the Second World War. And so in the in the marketing world specifically, you have war rooms, they do campaigns. So they brought a lot of this language. But it's, yeah, it's any kind of long-term activity where you're not going to control all the variables. So I mean, we think in terms of quarterly and yearly planning, you could plausibly argue that a quarterly plan is a campaign. Feels, feels, so. feels okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, I, I, what I'm not trying to be is dogmatic about what it means, because as you've said, and by the way, I was kicking myself, just said, oh yeah, it's an art. I was thinking uh, operational art. I wonder what that's for. Because it is not, it's not prescriptive. It's not but, but it's, it, I, I guess the point is, it is, there's a, in business, that's a, a good way of saying it. You know, it's either a campaign, if it's an advertising side of things, but that quarterly planning is really interesting. And we've, we've touched on this before, which is the military, I'm going to guess, in, in wartime operations, there isn't a standard unit of time that matters beyond the day because we give orders. This is going to last as long as it lasts. This thing will last one week. This thing will last three weeks as long as it lasts. In the business world, typically there's more predictability. And so they say, mm-hmm. you know, quarterly planning or yeah. this month or so I, I'm just trying to. Sort of yeah, absolutely. And, and there's, there's actually an interesting aspect of needing to synchronize different cycles different planning cycles different tempos um because of course different organizations are restrained and constrained by different factors and therefore are probably operating at different time frames and, and in the military there is a particular friction between air planning cycles and tactical land planning cycles because the land operations are driven by the opportunity They're driven by the activity of the enemy or the adversary. They're driven by uh, the need for seizing ground, seizing opportunity, speed. So what you tend to have is very, very fast cycles of operations, very, very fast planning cycles. Air operations, by contrast, because of the, the nature of air platforms, they're very, very fragile. They need lots and lots of maintenance. They need lots of protection. They cover long distances, so you might have to fly over other people's countries, and that requires diplomatic clearance. There's a whole need to do refueling that has to be perfect, because in the land environment, if you run out of fuel, you might get stuck, and that might be pretty bad. In the air environment, if you run out of fuel, you drop out of the sky, and it's very very bad. bad. So they work on this thing called the air tasking order cycle, which works roughly and it can change but roughly it works on a 72-hour cycle okay whereas at a let's say a brigade tactical operation you might routinely be working on a 24-hour cycle so synchronization of these different things is part of the the art of running operations we we've um i've been in businesses where we've got you know we've talked in past episodes about teams engineering teams and we, we we talked about sprints and a sprint is often two weeks i've been in organizations where different parts of the organization 
have different durations of their sprints. Yeah. And it's one of those things where from the inside, well, this makes sense for me, but from the outside, when you're trying to coordinate, it's a classic example of it's actually much harder for me to organize and potentially apply operational art when you work at that period cycle, you work at that. It's almost yeah. sort of you were talking yeah. about the land in the air, but that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So I started to talk about the two, the two sort of parts of the operational art. One is the planning. How do you translate a strategic set of objectives uh, and potentially a strategic vision into a series of things that you need to do, tangible things that can now be planned and executed. And then there is the campaign management, which we alluded to requires synchronization, but it also needs integration. We need coordination, coherence has to be brought from many different aspects of the capabilities that you have so that they work in concert to achieve those strategic outcomes. And in a military context, we can clearly look at things like the need for logistical sustainment balanced with the maneuver activity of the fighting force. So it's all very well having the best weapons and the high, you know, most highly trained, motivated troops. But if you can't get ammunition to the front line, then you're going to really, really struggle. And actually having better weapons is irrelevant. So balancing the different capabilities you've got in a business context, of course, that's things like balancing your marketing team with the restraints of the finance team or balancing the marketing team with the capability of the production team so that you're not overselling and therefore undermining your credibility or underselling when you're building up stock or, or whatever. Well, we've, we've, in my world, we have a really, and I'm sure there's a parallel. In the good old days, in fact, the good old days, typically when, when businesses are new, software businesses, they build one product and there are one or two teams that are building that one thing. There is little complexity. There is little dependency and they can go quite fast. Yeah. Very quickly, businesses evolve into much larger thing with multiple products, components within products and enormous dependency and complexity. So one of the biggest reasons why I see when, when delivery teams sort of software engineers and product managers are failing to deliver, one of the key things to go look at is how do they work together and manage those dependencies? So I think yeah. there's, a, there's a very good parallel there with all the things you've talked about. It turns out we burnt more fuel than we thought today. And so we're gonna need more fuel tomorrow. Can you organize that? Turns out this problem that we were solving in the software was bigger than we thought. We're now gonna to need to get some engineers from over there, yeah. but we now have to say, there aren't any engineers over there. So how do we deal with what they're... So it's this constant juggling, but I love that idea of the planning and execution as the planning starts you off, but the execution is where you sort of turn that into reality and then have to manage the day-to-day. -day. Yes. And, and of course, what you then need to do, because this isn't science, it's art, is you need to then work out where things are working, where they're not working, so you then need to assess what's happening and you need to then analyze the information that's coming in and adjust yep. your management and your command 
we've talked about the difference between management and command of that campaign, whilst also having that leadership wraparound. And I'm, I'm a deep believer in this idea that leaders in organisations, whether they're you know, senior managers or CEO, whatever, they're leaders by, by default. And we've said this before, everybody is a leader. Mm. But I'm, I'm very driven by this concept that senior leaders have less effect on the organisation than they think they do by tweaking things, by giving direction and have more effect than they think they do on their bearing, their attitude, their actions. I, I, I'm, I'm stuttering because of how much I agree. In fact, I'll go one step further. Not only do we not have, and I mean, I'm lucky I have a team around me, not only do I not have the ability to influence the things at the, the way we're describing it at the tactical level, the ground level, but more than that, there is a greater than average risk that I will screw things up. Not because I'm a bad person, not because I don't know what I'm doing, for the principal reason is I do not have the context or the ground level experience or knowledge that others have. So to your point, my I am, to some degree, I am the conductor in the orchestra. Yeah. And that is really, really important to understand. And it goes to this empowerment. And I'm looking for the rhythms or signs that something might be going wrong and say, you just said something. I, I, I want to now interrogate you. Why did you say it like that? Yeah. Okay, it turns out there's a problem. Good, now go fix the problem. That's, I have in the same way that I can't solve the problem at the ground level in the way that my team can, I also have a unique ability to see things that they can't see because of the different perspective, so. Absolutely, I, I think the, the conductor of an orchestra is a really, really good analogy. It has limits, of course, but you know, the conductor is at the front of the organization. They can see everybody in the orchestra. You know, the orchestra is deliberately seated around the conductor who is at the front and center seeing what is going on so they're getting that feedback they're visually very observable they're bearing their standard is is being imbibed by everybody in the orchestra and they are then balancing capability based on that feedback and so they're keeping people in line. They're making sure that one part, one section of the orchestra, you know, the tempo of their activity is in line with the tempo of another section of the orchestra. Otherwise, you can have lots and lots of ind individual musicians who are brilliant at what they do. But they're not, they're out of tune thing. with the other one. Yeah, 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 sounds like a bag of nails because it's not orchestrated. And we use the term orchestrated a lot. Well, look, let's, let's take a quick break and actually, once we come back from the break, let's go back because I think um, I, I can hear the voice of our of our friend in the back of my head. That's all great. But how? Yeah. I mean, let's let's maybe let's go back and sort of go to the planning level and, and sort of step through that in a bit more detail. Brilliant. Welcome back. We had just 
we just talked about orchestration and, and being the band leader. That's not the right word, is it? The uh, conductor. Thank you, the, the conductor. conductor. Yeah. Um, let's go back. I can, I'm lucky enough, I can see the publication in front of me, so I know there's a lot more. Let's start going back. I, um, Gareth, I have the most amazing strategy. Great news. Uh, I now need to get a group of people, 100 people, to actually create and execute on some tactics to achieve that strategy. How do we go about breaking it down? So we know that strategy is a long-term concept. And we've talked about you know, the, the fact that long-term is context-driven. But one of the first things to recognize is the capability that you bring to bear, you have a say in. So as an organization, you... You build your teams, you build your organizations, you build your capability, you invest in technology. And part of that is the, the art of building the orchestra, of building the organization to be able to achieve the missions, the outcomes, the operational functions that you so desire. And so one of the first things you need to do is to really deeply understand the situation, to understand what it is you're doing, why you do it, and operational environment within which you do it. So a good example of this, I think, is if we look at um, the Second World War. When we look back with hindsight, we can pick on bits and, and look at mistakes that were made and decisions that were made. And we've talked about decision-making, of course, and the pressures that people are under. If, if we take, let's oversimplify it, and, and take the US, the British Empire, and, and the Germans, uh, and let's look at the, the war in Europe. And of course, lots more actors in there, but, but those three uh, are what we're going to look at. And you look at the way they built weapon systems, which is your tactical capability. The Germans built very, very capable weapons, often in small numbers, often highly complex, highly difficult to build, expensive to build, and difficult to maintain, but very, very tactically effective. The Americans built capable weapons, not quite as good tactically in terms of firepower or maneuver or, or whatever, but they could build them faster and cheaper when they broke down you could unbolt you know a panel change the gearbox or replace it with a very cheap part very quickly and so there's the ability to sustain the force is as important as the ability to deliver you know lethal effect the british because of the circumstance we found ourselves in an island nation being squeezed having to bring everything in by convoys, fighting the, the maritime uh, battles that we were fighting. We made a decision to really not focus on optimum lethal capability, but to do things with the stuff we had. So we built weapons that arguably some of them were second rate, but we did it at a pace that was achievable to meet the objectives of what we needed. So in 1939, when, when we declared war, we realized there was better technology out there, but the time it would have taken to retool the machines 
to build those better weapons would have meant that we wouldn't have built as many weapons. So straight away, there's an operational decision about how you meet your strategic objective. So it's a very long-winded way of saying you've got to think about the whole picture rather than focus on the bit that interests you the most. And if you think about the difficulty that startups have with scaling, most startups are led by an expert in a particular field of interest, which is very tactical. It's the thing yeah, that they do. They are passionate. It's the thing they do. Absolutely. It's the thing they know well. It's the thing they have a unique differentiation on. The difficulty they have with scaling is... It's a new set of skills. It's a new set of skills and it's a new set of things to think well, about. Well, it's, it's a new situation. I've had this conversation with multiple sort of mid-sized companies, which is you are version seven of your company and each one needed different things. But to, to roll that back, the first thing I have to say is for those for those out there who happen to be World War II, interested in World War II, one of the really interesting points you made was it turns out the Tiger tank, while possibly yeah. the sexy tank, actually might not have been the right choice. And it turns out a, a large number of Sherman tanks, which might've been slightly inferior, probably was the right decision. I also yeah. thought, you, you know, where we started with this was, understanding what you have i think that tied into thing i so i'm i've started a number of companies and and i'm i'm sort of away in with the, the 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 company i'm working with right now i spent the first 30 days frankly meeting as many people as i could and asking questions yes and even 6 months later i was asking perhaps slightly fewer questions but it it takes a long time for you truly to understand the situation, yes. not just the facts and the people, but how all of that comes together. And I, I found that, and in the past have found that, people are a little bit keen to say, you should ask all the questions you want for the first X days, and then can we get on with it, please? Yeah. But actually truly understanding what you have and what you're trying to achieve is incredibly important. So, you know, first, first 30 days... If you're issuing edicts or you're making planning decisions, you really should only be doing that knowing I am, all I am doing is keeping the pot warm for when I make proper decisions. In other yeah. words, there, the worst thing would be for not to make any decision at all. So I'll make the best I can. But yeah. actually getting that sense of what you're doing is really important. Yeah. So going back to that cycle of operational art, plan, execute, assess, analyze, when you first step in as new general of the army, because- you know, I should have that as a title next or, time, by the way. Yeah, new, be great. New, new project manager, or you know, you're new to a company, you're not starting with plan, you're starting with analyze. And, and therefore you have to assess. And, and, and so there's a bit of going back, back around the cycle. There's a, there's a phrase that comes up in the military a lot, uh, and that is amateurs taught tactics, professionals taught logistics. And whilst I'm not a logistician, what it does is it really highlights the, the power of the wider system of systems in having an effect on your capability. So whilst junior officers or young soldiers, airmen, uh, sailors are, are really interested and passionate about what they do, delivering effect. You know, the, the particular field of specialism and expertise that they have, you've got to, as you get higher up in that organisation, as your scope widens, you've got to really start pulling 
these different aspects of the organization together. You've got to start thinking about the implications of one group, one organization, one sub subset activities on another. I, I, there's we, we so in my world we talk about working cross-functionally these wonderful terms exactly but it. but but that's what we mean and I, yeah. I i think that's another you know i'm i'm thinking in terms of you've arrived somewhere uh, a new organization you you know you're starting to pull together what what you want to do and how you want to do it you know item number one analyze and understand what you're you know the people around you and what you're trying to do but i think that that point as i would call it cross-functional it's another one of those classic things where I've, I've seen two, two things happening. The first thing is, why are you talking to those guys? Their job is to do X. Your job is to do Y. So could you get on with Y and not talk to X? Mm. Which is a terrible idea. Because yeah. to your point, it's the system of systems working together. And the, the second thing as well, which I found, again, I'm, I'm always surprised by the fact that it, it, it's as difficult to think about, which is, Remember in that system of systems, every different group has a different goal and a different agenda. Yep. And, you know, th and there's a different culture and a different culture. So to use the uh, to continue, because I, I know we, we both love our Second World War analogies, the RAF, there were various times of tension with the army where the army said, we would like you to place airplanes above where we're fighting and shoot at things. And the RAF said, no, we want to have heavy bombers because our job is this. So yeah. the, the point being is turn up, analyze what you've got, build relationships with these other systems of systems across, across these functions. But also remember, they, even though notionally they are aligned to your broader goal, the reality is in the day to day, are they? I was actually having this conversation only today, which is, there's this weird thing where you say, if I tell them a good thing, they will want to support that good thing. But the reality is it's a good thing for you. Mm. You might not care a stuff about that good thing. Yeah. And so that's a build those connections and understand those motivations because you need to support them in their goals as much as they need to support you. Absolutely. And, and not only that, so we're, we're talking now about understanding, you know, subordinate capabilities, organizations, what they do, what their motivations are. But we also need to generate cross-functional, as you say, interest, understanding, shared awareness, shared consciousness of what everybody else is contributing. So there's, there's healthy competition, which generates uh, a kind of a sense of pride in your particular part of the shift. Or, but yeah. um, and then there's insidious tribalism. Yeah. And this is something, obviously, we're talking a lot about lessons from the military, but actually, this is something the military gets wrong an awful lot, is we get that balance wrong for a whole load of cultural reasons that we're not going to go into now. But what we end up doing is creating silos of tribalism where you don't have that empathy, you don't have that cross-functional understanding. Well, and also, I think there's the practical, again, just to, I think today is our World War II day, there is... The, the evolution of aircraft working with ground forces in the Second World War, at the beginning, that really hadn't worked out how to do that. And they struggled for a long time. And, and my understanding is it was only when they got to North Africa that something miraculous happened. They put the tent 
with the Air Force leaders next to the, temp, the army leaders. And they said, we are going to work together. When historically, the RAF was over there at the airfield thing, and we we're over here at the other thing. And so that, that sense of it can be as simple as, am I next to you? Are we doing this together? And I mean, I know we're, we're at the risk of sort of being very second world war about this. When was the last time you went to a meeting with your peers in other groups? When was the last time that you either had a specific meeting where you said, we're going to come together and talk about what we're doing together? Yeah. Or when did you sit in on their team meeting to find out what their problems were? Without it being a competition because with, of the boss was there. And also yeah. perhaps even without it being part of a project. Because, yes. you know, you always yeah. say, well, when I need marketing to do something, I'll pick up the phone to them. Yeah, but when was the last time you picked up the phone when you didn't need something from them and you got to have a slightly different conversation? Yeah, and I think we're, we'll move on to this sort of conversation later on, I suspect, about the balance of efficiency and productivity against building adaptability, flexibility, and resilience. But part of that, of course, is, you know, I'll talk to marketing when I need them. It's a very- Transactional. Kick the can down the road. Well, it's very transactional. It's very based around this idea of, well, you know, if and when I ever need to understand it, I'll, I'll do it on the day. You, the last thing you want to do during a crisis is have to learn internal lessons because you've got lots of external lessons that you're desperately also trying to learn. Well, particularly because if you're if you're in that pressured situation where the implication is either something is going wrong or something is high pressured, do you really want to be standing next to someone who says, I know the only time you ever pick up the phone to me is when you want something. And so it, it is, do you want a transactional relationship, arguably that potentially doesn't have trust, or do you want to invest the time in advance through the trust? And I, there'll be a few people here saying, well, all of this sounds splendid. And I'm sure we'll talk about break more of this down. But I'm really busy. And so I don't have time. Like the idea that I would phone marketing and have a chat about what they're doing. Don't you understand, Chris? It's really busy what I do. I, I, I get that a lot. I, I think one of the reasons why I think I've seen and participated in success in the past is, honestly, if you don't, it will bite you on the bum when it matters. Yes. And so I will work harder to find the time to make those relationships and make them work and be thoughtful because when it matters, all of a sudden things happen miraculously. That person says, I've got your back. Mm. That person says, I've got an idea, Chris. I think I can help you rather than you're in a bit of trouble over there. I don't want to be part of that. Good luck to you. So yeah, th there's that. You use the term efficiency, and I know it wasn't quite in the same way, but I, I think people mistake, I don't have time to do these things. Like, I don't have time to do proper planning. I don't have time to meet and do the things that we're going to talk about. The argument is you actually don't have time not to do those things. Yes. That and the yeah. way that you win, the way that you make it happen quickly is by practice and practice and practice. And so then it turns out you don't need to spend an hour and a half meeting with them. You can catch up with them for 10 minutes over a coffee or whatever it might be. But I, I investing in advance is not time wasting. If you do it right, it's the building blocks that, that, that give you the best results at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, what we're talking about here is, is linking strategy to activity. And there are three aspects to that. One is maximizing efficiency and productivity given 
uncertainty from an external perspective. And when that's the case, and we've talked about this before, you can't have a, a plan, a Gantt chart. You can't have a set of rules that you follow. You have to feel your way through the problem. You have to probe the problem. You have to have feedback. And, and a lot of it relies on trust of other people. So things that feel deeply inefficient, like there's only so many hours in the day, I don't want to have a meeting with this organization on the off chance I might need to use them in the future. Actually, that is really important because it's not on the off chance. You will, you just don't know when. You just don't know how. And building those relationships, it comes back to our point about wargaming that we've done in the past. Testing yeah. new ideas, challenges, new concepts is really, really important. And it's part of the art of the operational art of the like we're going to analyze what we know and then we're going to learn what we don't know well you almost only get efficiency when you've managed to master how you communicate who you communicate and where and i i you know often we i mean the principle of this podcast was two people down a pub talking to each other but i, I want to remember that there then there are we think people listening I would challenge everyone listening, whether they're in the military or the business world, to say, can you think about every department or function you work with? Do you have a transactional relationship with them, which says I speak to them when I need to, and outside of that, I don't really want to talk to them? Or do you actually feel you have a strong relationship with your peer? If push came to shove, would they tell their people to say, dig in for these guys, we need to help them? and we trust them and yeah. we know them, or would they say, oh, it's you again, what do you want? That's a, I think that's a very practical, practical go, go think about that. Yeah. Do you know your peers and colleagues in the way that you perhaps should? I think if we were trying to put this into context as to why operational art is relevant or valuable, I would say traditionally in an industrial age, so the vast majority of, organizational experience over the last 100 years or so militaries and business has been based around the industrial age model and in an industrial age things move slowly and you get competitive advantage through doing things cheaper faster and better than your competitors. efficiency on its own is victory absolutely because the market shifts slowly apart from some disruptive innovators creating advantage through new technology, actually the consumer's view of things and kind of requirement changes quite slowly, but you can get advantage by, by scale, by improving your internal machinery, by, yeah, like I say, making things faster, better, and cheaper. In the information age, where we find ourselves now it doesn't really matter that much. There is still definitely an aspect of needing to be efficient. And I'm certainly not an advocate of waste for the sake of it. But that isn't your differentiation. Competitive advantage is created through the ability to understand the environment, understand the volatility of that environment, understand the change that is happening, and therefore use that information, use that intelligence we've talked about data information and intelligence in order to create influence and you create influence by changing people's attitudes 
and by changing their attitudes, you change their behaviors. And so if we think about some of the biggest companies in the world right now, they don't make a lot. And what they make isn't necessarily the best, but it is the thing that everybody wants. It is based around massive amounts of data and trend. Competitive advantage isn't necessarily having the most data. It's knowing how to use it to change people's attitudes and behaviors. Well, that's no different in war. In fact, that's where the link to this comes back to operational art. War is all about changing people's attitudes and behaviors. Sometimes, quite literally, through lethal force, force through huge use of violent force which is quite and other times it's flying a tornado very low over a bunch of insurgents who say i'll leave now because Absolutely. yeah the, 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 it was funny as we were talking about this one of the things that struck me about operational art and i know this isn't going to be in the textbook which is art implies a human being and i yes. think throughout all of this what one of one of the really strong takeaways for me which is obviously hinted by the name is there isn't an algorithm for this. There isn't, if you get a template and fill in this spreadsheet, congratulations, you'll have turned this in. Yes, there are guides. Yes, there are approaches. Yes, there are things you think about, but it is the human being that is going to be the one that could take exactly the same thing and yeah. make it successful and another yeah. human being unsuccessful. And I, we, I'm going to cheat slightly here. I think we've mentioned this before where we, we try to record these a little bit ahead. We both have full-time jobs. And so we have to do this. T today, the Deputy Prime Minister resigned, Dominic Raab. And it was, it was very interesting. I took a little bit of time, uh, because I'm boring, to read the report. And at one level, it's, it's not clear to me. So this was a report about whether he was uh, guilty of bullying. And it's not clear to me. It wasn't immediately clear that he was clearly a bully or not a bully. And so I'm sure there will be endless discussions. I think Dominic Raab suggests he wasn't. Was. But what struck me was, though, it doesn't matter whether he was a bully or not. He was ineffective. He is, in a sense, he has failed as a leader because enough people in his organization doubted him and felt that he was not the right leader. And again, it, it, so this idea of operational art, there are lots of people saying he was very good at what he did. Well, he was, except for the bit where everyone thought he was an idiot and they didn't want to work for him. So that, that the the human piece is very interesting. Anyway, sorry, yeah. that was a that was a, a side thing that was no, interesting I think it's today. a really important piece, and I, I suspect we're we're going to draw this episode to a close shortly, and and we certainly not. Are we going to? I think we might be on for one or two I episodes. Think we're going to have to at least yeah, yeah, push yeah. on to another episode. I think but, so. Um, I I did an experiment the other day where I asked Chat GTP four. Um, what is the value of a human in decision-making as opposed to AI? Firstly, what was fascinating in the answer... Did it say kill all the humans? It didn't, oh, thankfully. Thank God. <laughs> its response started with a caveat where it said, I'm not a human, I'm a AI, and therefore I don't have opinions, and this is a very difficult question for me to answer, which I thought was a... An incredibly human-like yes, response, which is a bit terrifying. But it came up with five things that make humans different. And, and if we think about complexity, we're talking about the interaction between systems. Often, what makes things complex is 
unpredictable activity, human behavior. I was about to say, who, what are the most unpredictable things in the world? That would be human beings. Yeah. But the five things that the AI came back with was emotional intelligence. It can replicate artificial emotional intelligence, but it doesn't feel emotion. And of course, in some circumstances, removing emotion from a problem might be an advantage. But in an awful lot, if you don't have empathy, you're going to struggle. And I think the, the Dominic Raab situation, whilst I don't know any of the, the internal details, I think what comes across is irrespective of good or bad behavior, there is a huge lack of empathy. Yeah. Flexibility and adaptability. So ChatGTP4 admitted, if a, if a machine can admit things, that it gathers all its data from a previous group of large... By, by definition, there ranks. is no flexibility. It uses the data it has. Yes. And so... It can't invent new data. Well, actually, it can. It does invent things. But it, does, it, it, but it bases its answer on the data set that is available. Yeah, yeah. And so that unpredictability of future complexity is something that humans are far better at thinking about and therefore anticipating. So we are flexible and adaptive to change in a way that currently um, AI isn't. Creativity, the, the value in getting a diverse group of people to think about ideas, about mm -hmm. problem solving and solutions, is a really important part of operational art. We're back to the art, not science. If you think about how you're going to do things differently and then you add that layer of subterfuge and Machiavellian thinking of what do the enemy think I'm going to do or what does the competitor think I'm going to do? How can I do things differently? And then you're into the world of second guessing well, what are they going to do? And, and now we're into linking strategy to tactics we're thinking about that game of chess if i move here mm. where will they move i prefer actually the analogy of poker rather than chess because chess is bounded poker the rules of the actual game are relatively simple but but you the can play you can bluff. all about yeah. the emotional yeah. manipulation of the competitors um so it's about the facial expressions it's about the bluff it's about the trying to identify the tell, trying to give false tell, etc. And very, very similar to conflict, where you are you know, trying to deceive people through what you do. You're trying to set patterns to get them to fall into traps. You're trying to create dilemmas rather than problems. A dilemma being something where whatever choice they make that you leave them with is going to leave them with a problem. Minefields are brilliant they're not minefields are terrible minefields are brilliant for creating dilemmas, dilemmas yeah because once you're in one you're in one so you can either keep going or you can now retreat but either way you have a big problem so creativity is huge just it's just say if it. ever we become really really successful and there's millions of downloads you do realize some newspaper is going to print Cut that bit out. Gareth Tennant yeah. believes minefields are fantastic. Can I, can I add to that then that I'm a massive advocate of the Ottawa Convention? Um, number four was physical abilities. And I think that is probably a time limited uh, advantage humans have. But yeah, it's the dexterity yeah. and the fact that I can build IKEA furniture that a robot really struggles with. But I think that's time limited. And the final one was moral judgment. And again, ChatGTP was pretty. 
open about the fact they can they can fake moral judgment. They can pretend to have moral judgment, but they can't actually have it. Well, it's all repeated patterns. Yeah. That's really what it's showing. Yeah. It's it's repeating patterns of other people who have demonstrated moral judgment, I suppose. But I, I think what that was that was, I mean, I know we 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 do this a lot where we sort of branch off and talk about something else, but I think. First of all, it's comforting to know that as humans, we are still different. Mm. It's actually valuable to identify what those things are different, not because we don't want to be taken over by the robots, but because going back to operational art, those five factors you described have massive implications on every aspect of those things. Your ability to deliver, your ability to influence, your ability to make decisions. So I think that's particularly interesting. And Yeah, if you think about bringing this to a military linked to strategy tactics that moral judgment piece if you think about going after a an an effect a goal an objective just based on what i can do not what i should do actually because of the way humans behave because of the other actors the other audiences has an effect and so and this is why i'm hugely confident in the long term about western military capability because we have a massive disadvantage in that we we constrain ourselves through some of our moral choices ethical and moral choices around what we will and won't allow the the government you know reach to be the ability of militaries to do things but ultimately in the in the strategic long-term reaching of objectives we're all human all of us whether you're Eastern, Northern, Southern, Western, I'm not going to talk about countries, but, but we're all human. And so by having moral judgment that is better than the competitor, you are creating advantage, even if it creates a tactical disadvantage. That's a very deep uh, No, but, I, but, I, segue, I, I, but... Do, I, I, I think the, the principles that you're espousing, while many people might claim them to be a bit hippie, I think are first absolutely true and secondly absolutely applicable in business. Um, you know, Google's do no evil. I, I mean, I it's difficult to speak on behalf of a company. My suspicion is when Google started, that truly was mm. that really was what they wanted to do. The challenge that companies like Google and Microsoft and others have now is, I'm sorry, it's now a hundred times harder for you to be moral. The US government comes to you and says, we would like to use your AI technology to drive our drones. Do you give it to them? Do you not give it to them? The, the huge bit, moral dilemma. Huge moral dilemma. If this is a weakness, then I'll accept this one. I think it's, it's along the lines of what you've said. I talk to my teams over many years about the need to be honest and credible as leaders and people on a team. And the, the, the conversation I have is, if you're honest, there's there's nothing that can betray you, if you know what I mean. Yes. Like, yeah. if it goes wrong, well, it's going to go wrong. But if, if ever you're not honest, if you don't have that moral judgment, there is always an opportunity for people to say, well, you know, why should I listen to you? Yeah. You know, why should I do that? Honesty is... Honesty in us in that sense is a really powerful. It weapon. also it creates the endemic problems that we are you know, again bring it back to a military example. We're seeing have seen over the last twelve months in in the horrific invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, where from a tactical perspective we 
Russian capability based on hardware, lethality, mobility, survivability, all of these good things. Uh, and said, yeah, Russia on paper outweighs Ukraine by a factor of you know, 10. Operationally, they've done more, so they should be better. But then you come to this link between strategy, what is it they're trying to achieve, and tactics. And that's where they come unstuck. And there's lots of lessons in here that probably aren't relevant to this podcast. But what we're seeing is the link between what are they trying to achieve? What is their purpose? What is their goal? And are the people, the men and women who are delivering that? And they're not just the people on the front line. I'm talking about the Russians here. But it's the people back in, you know, Belgorod Mm -hmm. or Moscow or... Busy stealing things off tanks. Well, yeah. They're not working towards the same goal there isn't coherence there isn't synchronization there isn't shared consciousness and actually that it comes back to this point i made earlier about the effect of leaders on the tactical delivery of capability they underestimate the effect they have through their actions they overestimate their ability to control and i think in the next podcast, we'll get on to the link between operational art and mission command, because that's where you have to start feeding control, really to bring the capability to the fore and really to link it to what you strategically want to achieve. So what, what a good place for us sort of to land, which is you can talk about turning strategy into tactics, but because it's called an art... It implies there are way more factors in there. And if you want an excellent example today of how important those other factors, the sort of the, the, the unknowable, the, the people factor, Ukraine arguably should be an occupied country with a number of Russians running around because nobody bet that that wouldn't be the case. And yet, contrary to every predicted outcome, not only are they not an occupied country in totality, but right now the conversation is how successful do we think the counteroffensive will be? And if that isn't a brilliant example of, frankly, I, I think it's, you know, we've said this before, a case study in leadership, management, goals, command, command, all these logistics, things. Sustainment. Whether we would have whether we would have imagined that a couple integrity. of years ago. Process doesn't save you, people save you, but process gives those people a greater chance for success. Talking about this stuff, we are very philosophical, but the really key thing here is um, it's not because it's fluffy. It's not because it's hippie. I think both of us are, in a sense, quite ruthless about being successful, and therefore we do these things not because, you know, isn't it great? It makes us feel better as human beings, although I think there's none of that. It's you do it because that is what is going to give me the greatest success. Declaring what our strategy is and that we will kill the opposition in a business sense is one thing. But if you don't have the people with the art to turn that, you're you're in trouble. Well, you know, this this one has definitely turned into a little bit of 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 a Friday night with a glass of wine ramble. We'll call it for now. Um, uh, but obviously let's come back and dig into that a bit more. And I think we've probably got a little bit more to do on the planning yep. and then we should talk about the sort of the, the, the execution side of things. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, as usual, we love 
getting feedback from all of you. So don't forget our DMs are open. I believe the kids are saying on, <laughs> on Twitter, that's battling with biz and biz is with a Z. But also please do tell your friends. Um, one of the things that we've been gratified to see is that week over week, the uh, listenership is growing and we're excited to have more people. So thank you very much for listening. Come back and listen to us again next week where we'll carry on talking about operational art. But for now, it's a uh, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me, cheerio.